Psalm 15. Psalm 15. By the way, if you're ever looking for inspiration, it almost doesn't matter what your circumstances are, go to, go to the book of Psalms. Just start reading through the Psalms. It's really, really good. Psalm 15. And the good part about the Psalms too is, as you start churning your way through them, you think, well, oh, that was quick. Because <laughs> they're only short, most of them. And then you get to Psalm 119. And that slows you down. Because it's got about 24 chapters to it. Uh, or 22. Psalm 15. Let's just read that. Lord, who shall abide in thy tabernacle, or your tent, or your dwelling? Who shall dwell in thy holy hill? He that walketh uprightly, and worketh righteousness, and speaketh the truth in his heart. Uh, he that uh, backbiteth not with his tongue, nor doeth evil to his neighbour, nor taketh up a uh, reproach against his neighbour, in whose eyes a vile person is condemned, but he honours them that fear the Lord. He that swears to his own hurt, and changes not. He that puts uh, not out his money to, to usury, nor takes reward against the innocent. He that does these things shall never be moved. And it's only a little psalm here, but it's a psalm dealing with um, meeting the Lord or going to be with the Lord, living with the Lord and so on. And he says, who's going to live in God's tabernacle? Who's going to be with him? And if you're with God, of course, you're there with him forever. And he lists a number of things and uh, he lists things that perhaps are, are sort of, um, uh, uh, what can I say, uh, basic human failings, you know, uh, uh, gossipers and uh, people who are nasty, people who are, uh, you know, uh, greedy and so on and so on, people who are, um, you know, who um, um, vindicate the wicked and, and condemn the just and so on and so on. All sorts of little odds and ends that he sort of goes through there. But verse 2, he sort of summarises, he that walks uprightly, and works righteousness, and speaks the truth in his heart. And uh, he summarises it by saying, well, if you want to be with God, if you want to live with God, then you're going to have to be a pretty good example. You have to go to reach a pretty good uh, level, as it were, here. There's someone who walks uprightly and works righteousness. Now, there is a major problem with that, because throughout the Bible it teaches us that there's nobody good, no, not one person. It says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. Uh, and so we, we sort of all immediately identify how difficult this is going to be to achieve. Over to Psalm 19, just across the page. Again, another favourite of mine. And I've got to be careful I don't break out the song as we read this one out. Who said, don't you dare? Someone said, don't please. Um, Psalm 19, verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure or certain, making wise the simple. The uh, statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The uh, commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is uh, clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. And uh, this is, I think, Sir David here. Yes, David. As he goes through things and he says, well, let's start off with what is true and good and right and holy. And he says, when I think of what's good and right and holy and true, he says, what is correct is God's instructions 
I mean, think about it, whether it's the, you know, the Ten Commandments or the other 623, you know, uh, 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 you know, don't hurt your neighbour, make sure that you build a, ba- you know, a balcony around your rooftop, um, you know, there's lots and lots of them. If, uh, uh, don't let your bull out so that it goes and hurts your next door neighbour, and if you do let it out and it hurts your next door neighbour, he gets to kill your bull and keep it. You know, all those regulations in the Old Testament there, they're fair, they're correct, they're accurate. Um, if you, uh, um, uh, uh, fighting with your neighbour and you, 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 you knock out his uh, eye or something or other, well then he's entitled to take you to the judge and he's entitled to gouge out your eye. Well, sounds a bit yucky, doesn't it? Uh, but that's fair. Oops, there, sorry. That's fair. It's fair enough. The Old Testament laws are uh, love your neighbour and hate your enemy. That seems fair enough, doesn't it? Love your neighbour, hate your enemy, um, and so on. And, and in that sense, the regulations in the Old Testament, you know, there's don't steal, don't kill, don't destroy, don't hurt people. Uh, if you borrow something, and uh, you've got to give it back. If you uh, nick something, you've got to pay back, I forgot, it depends on what you nick, but you've got to pay back double or four times, depending on what it was you nicked and so on. There's all sorts of rules, and they're all correct, they're all right, they're all fair. And we all failed. All the people said. We all failed. There's none righteous. No, not one. In verse 10, uh, More to be desired of they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than the honey and the honeycomb. He says, when I think about them, he says, they are so good, so right, they're like pure gold. He says, they're like honey. If only I could do it, it would be sweet in my mouth to be able to do all that stuff and never make a mistake. But then he goes on and he says, well, let's get real for a minute. In verse 11, Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them is the great reward. He says, he says, by looking at them and reading them, he says, I do get a big warning from them. All sorts of bells and alarms start to go off. Thou should not do this, thou should do that, thou should not do this, thou should do that. He says, the warning bells all go off. By them thy servant is warned. I get the message. They're there for a point. They're there for a purpose. You, the Lord, have designed that to warn me, to show me what my problems are. He says, by them my servant is warned, in verse the same verse again, and the keeping of them is great reward. If you can actually keep these things, if you can do these things, he says there's actually a big reward for those that can keep them. But as I say, the problem was, of course, we just couldn't do it. It was beyond us. In verse 12, who can understand his errors? Cleanse thou me from secret uh, faults. Uh, keep back the ser- thy servant also from uh, presumptuous sins or, or arrogant sins or sins of arrogance. Uh, let them not have dominion over me. Uh, then shall I be upright and I shall be uh, innocent uh, from the great transgression. Uh, let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord my strength and my, my redeemer. And the, uh, the writer here, uh, King uh, David, he's saying here, he says, he says, but actually, he says, I've got all sorts of problems. He said, I've got secret sins and open sins and presumptuous sins and arrogant sins. He said, they just seem to you know, kind of drip off me. How am I going to get past this? And the New Testament explains how we succeed. Second Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians Chapter 5. It does seem a tall order when you first read it. You think, oh my goodness. 
just about impossible. But that's, that's why the Bible's in two halves. There's the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament was, uh, here's all my requirements, the Lord is saying. If you can do them, you'll live. And the New Testament is, well actually that didn't work out too well. Nobody could keep up with it. Because nobody could keep up with it, I've sent my own son to die for your sins. And my own son is going to pay the price for you so that we can swap places. So we read in Second Corinthians chapter 5 a great little summary of that, starting in verse 17. Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, and behold, all things are become new. To be in Christ means you're filled with God's Holy Spirit. That's what it means in a nutshell. And he says, if you're in Christ, he says you're a new creature. Something started again. Now, uh, does it suddenly mean that you never ever make any mistakes again? No. Does it mean that you never ever fall flat on your face again? No. The Bible says a righteous man falls seven times, but he's not forsaken. What it does mean, though, is that there is a new creature on the inside. Your spirit and God's spirit have joined together and they've formed a new creation on the inside. The Bible says we are a kind of first fruits of his new creatures. And uh, although you and I look at each other and perhaps all we see is, you know, brother Ian there, handsome young fellow, and you think, well, that's Ian, you know, or, or, or Ed over the other side there. Almost as handsome. Even though we perhaps look at those and we say, well, we, we, I know Ian, I know Ed, or whatever it may be. The Bible says that's not actually the real you. The Bible says that's the outer man. That's the exterior man. That's the one that's made of flesh and blood. And it says flesh and blood won't inherit the kingdom of God. It says inside of you, there's the real you, your spirit, your soul. You know, you've heard all those sorts of terms before. And the Bible explains that when God's Holy Spirit comes into you, it says God's spirit and our spirit joined together to make a new creature. And the day you get baptised and get filled with the Holy Spirit, I'm pointing here because that's where the baptism tank is, the day you get baptised and get filled with the Holy Spirit, you, it's as if, and I, and I, I sort of jokingly say to people after they get baptised, I say, oh, well, it's like you've just been born. You're like a, a, a 35-minute-old baby. You're about that big in God's eyes. And people look askance at me and they wonder how that works. I say, well, that's what the Bible teaches us. You've been born again. You've been born from above. And that new creature has an amazing condition in the eyes of God. Because we read on in verse 18, And all things are of God, who has reconciled us to himself by Jesus Christ, and has given to us the ministry of reconciliation. To wit, that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead, be ye reconciled to God. For he has made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. And this is just such a wonderful description of our new relationship. He says, he made Jesus, that's the he in the story, Christ. It says, God was in Christ, reconciling the world to himself. Some people sort of have this idea that Jesus was kind of completely, in a funny way, completely separate from God. Uh, but the Bible says, and that's not quite true, God was in Christ when he was on earth, 
reconciling the world to himself. Jesus' name was predicted to be Emmanuel. Who remembers what Emmanuel means? God with us. So it's like having God living on earth with us. That's astonishing. Jesus said, whoever sees me has seen the Father. Believe you not that I and my Father are one. And so God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. In other words, there are some churches that believe that God sent an archangel or some angel to come and rescue us. That's not true. He came himself. Even the name Jesus means Jehovah my Saviour. That's who Jesus is. Jehovah my Saviour. And so he came down, he gave his life for us. Now if God in Christ gave his life for us, that's a massive price to pay. The Bible actually elsewhere refers to it as a great price. Uh, and it says that he died for the sins of the whole world. It says he's the firstborn of every creature. It's Imagine if you could sacrifice the firstborn of every creature that's ever lived on earth. Every firstborn sheep or cow or, or donkey, goodness knows, any other animal you like, might like to imagine, or birds. The Bible talks about the turtle doves being sacrificed, the, the, the doves and so forth, various other creatures, goats and what have you. And you add up all the firstborn creatures of the world and sacrificed all of them at once. That's chicken feed compared to the Son of God dying for your sins. Jesus Christ, the firstborn of every creature. And he tells us here in verse 21, For he has made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Uh, There's an amazing transaction taking place. Jesus at the cross at Calvary around 30 AD, back in April, uh, he, he at that moment in time represented and took upon himself the punishment for the sins of the entire world. God made him to be sin for us, even though he knew no sin himself, he was perfect, he was without spot, without blemish, sinless in every, every possible aspect, but it says God made him to be sin for us so that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. We've been credited with God's righteousness. He tells us that back in verse uh, twen- verse, eight, verse uh, 19, imputing their trespasses unto them, not imputing their trespasses unto them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. God no longer imputes our trespasses to us. We're free. It's the greatest gift in history. All the people said, praise the Lord, the righteousness of God because of Jesus Christ. It's the most amazing gift in history. Most people who are spirit-filled probably don't even get it. And that's a strange thing to say, isn't it? I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people over the decades and many of them just have no concept of it. Many of them just spend their days, uh, you know, in prayer asking God for forgiveness of all the things they've done that day. You know, God, I need forgiveness for this, for this. You spend your whole day, you spend your whole life asking for forgiveness, wouldn't you? One or two of you would, apparently. All right. Um, You spend your whole life doing that. But that's not what it's about. It's about the fact that He made him to be sin for us and you know sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Our job is to now believe what Jesus said. The Bible teaches us that the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. Faith is believing. We're to believe it. It says the righteous should live by faith. The just should live by faith. So this is the amazing condition we're in in the New Testament, which is fantastic. James chapter 1. Now I just want to branch off a little bit to a thought that someone asked in the, asked the Oracle discussion last week 
and I hope I've got time to just go through it. It's a, so we, we understand our condition, that's why we love coming to communion every Sunday. We love making sure that we take the communion to remind ourselves, yabba dabba doo, I'm free of sin because of Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Okay? That's what communion is all about. We might almost call it the yabba dabba doo ceremony, but we don't. We call it communion. Now, James chapter 1. Someone asked the question last week, well, what about you get spirit-filled and then you sin after you're spirit-filled? Well, uh, my dear brothers and sisters, you are sinning every single day. You got out of the baptismal tank and possibly the first thing you thought was, oh, that guy held me under too long. You know, you know, you, you thought an evil thought about Pastor Mike or something or other. Or maybe you, you went to pray with me afterwards and you thought, oh, goodness me, you'd think he'd, you know, um, wear a better coloured tie than that one. And you thought another sin straight away. And then as you went home, you th- someone uh, irritated you on the way home in the car. Oh, get off the your road. You said, beep, 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 beep. As you do your nana at the bloke on the other, you know, in the second lane. And, uh, I mean, I'm not saying you did do that. But uh, the Bible, Paul the Apostle says, I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I find not. He describes how in our flesh, our flesh is sin. But the Spirit is life because of righteousness. So let's talk about making mistakes and, uh, and what have you. In James chapter 1, which is a, a really good launching pad here, um, in verse uh, 14, But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. In other words, when we talk about stuff that we do that's dumb, he says, what happens is, a little thought comes into your head and you think, oh, that would be nice to do that or to, 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 to go there or to do this or whatever it may be. And he says, you get tempted when something just comes into your brain and you're tempted by your own lust. He says, don't blame God. In other words, some people have this idea, you know, some people say the devil made me do it. Some people say, no, God made me do it. Don't, don't ever blame God, for goodness sake. I mean, you can blame the devil. That's, that's not bad. But that's not what the Bible does. The Bible blames you. Okay. Every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust. Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he any man. Don't blame God for it. Verse 14. But every man is tempted when he's drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Enticed here. If you remember, it's the word planeo in the Greek. And uh, if you ever sat there at night and thought to yourself, all oh, the planets, where does that come from? It comes from the Greek word planeo, meaning to wander. Because the ancients, as they looked at the skies, all the constellations move in a very, very symmetrical pattern. But there's a couple of things up in heaven that don't. Uh, one is the moon, of course. The other one is the planets. The planets seem to just, I won't say wander, that's the wrong word, but they, they're not in sync with everything else. Who knows what I'm talking about? Thank you, those three people. And of course, that's why they gave them the name, the planeos or the planets. They wander, they seem to wander. Uh, just kind of like Jupiter's just kind of there one minute and you know what I'm saying. Uh, they, they, they follow the same track. I'm not saying they don't follow the same track, but, but compared to the stars, they seem to be wander. And that's the expression wandering stars. That's where you get that from. That's the planets in the Bible. Anyway, back to the point. So the point is it says he's drawn away of his own lust, he's enticed or he wanders. And then when lust has conceived, it brings forth sin. And sin, when it's conceived, brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. So James is warning the Christians, he says, hang on, this is how the little three-step goes. You think about it, 
and lust after it. And if you let that go on, you'll do it. You'll sin. And if you let that go on, it will result in your death, your spiritual death. And uh, it can be a thousand different topics, of course. It can be anything as, as a, you know, as evil as thinking about murdering someone. You might be thinking, oh, I might just, uh, actually I shouldn't say that, that's a terrible thing to say, but, but you know, that, that's the worst example I can think of, murdering someone, you know. And uh, you think about it, and then you decide to do it, and then you eventually never recover from that. And that's what he's describing here. Lust, sin, death. Uh, at another level, maybe it's as simple as, uh, um, you know, you, you've decided you want to be uh, a movie star or one of those uh, singers on TV or something rather. And uh, you, you lust after, you think about it, you think, oh, I'd probably have to move out of Australia, I'd probably have to go over and live in, uh, you know, New York or something rather. But that wouldn't matter. And then you do it. And you go on Channel 9 or whatever it is and you sing your heart out and they make you the, the champion, the star. And then before you know it, I mean, I don't know if you know, but that fellow, um, is it Guy Sebastian? Is that his name? Yeah, I think he's a spirit-filled guy. And I watched him when he first went on and I thought, I mean, I don't want to rubbish him, I'm not doing that. But uh, I thought, oh, the temptations of that new lifestyle, brother, are going to be a bit hard to hold on, back on. And within a very short space of time, and, you know, one thing led to another. Anyway, I want to go, come on together. And he seems a lovely person, don't get me wrong. But what I'm trying to say is, for a spirit-filled Christian, it's not us. All the people said, "You know, we're not, we're not out to be international football stars or, or you know, the managing directors of uh, Rio Tinto Zinc or something or other. That's not us. We don't care. Our job is serving the Lord." And he says, "Lust, sin, death. It brings forth death. The final result is we no longer are in fellowship. We know that's no longer the most important thing in our life." We're no longer walking with the Lord. We're no longer serving the Lord. We're no longer meeting with the saints. We're no longer singing and clapping and praying and worshipping and, and uh, you know, we're often using the gifts of the Holy Spirit and so on and so on. We leave the Lord. That's death. Not in a physical sense yet, but a spiritual sense. It's death. Lust, sin, you actually do it. You think it, you do it, and then you're gone. Because what it leads to is falling away. That's the tragedy. He goes on in verse uh, 17. Uh, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. What he's saying here is, good stuff actually comes from God. Okay, All good stuff comes from God. Uh, bad stuff comes from, uh, well, the other bloke thinks up all that sort of stuff. I remember someone years ago saying to me, oh look, I like marijuana and had the audacity to quote me a scripture about you know good things and so forth. And I said, well, hang on, there's another scripture. It says, God made every tree that was good to the eye or pleasant to eat. You know, the fruit was pleasant to eat. It doesn't say, or which was really mellow to smoke. It doesn't say that. Look at it, eat its fruit. It does not say smoke it. Um, you know, and the, the, their thought was, well, you know, God made it. It's not true. Good gifts come from God. Uh, it, we turn good things into evil things. As human beings, it says the thoughts of our heart is only evil continually. Uh, it says we are, we are inventors of many evil things. Something can be very good to start with and uh, from God, very good, and we change it and pervert it and corrupt it. That's human nature. Uh, and the Lord says, don't go there. 
The good stuff comes from God, but don't pervert and corrupt it. Verse 18. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. That's a great encouragement. He says in, in your life, one of your biggest problems is what you say, it's your mouth. And, uh, you know, sometimes, you know, we'd, we'd do better if we had a zip on our mouth, we could zip it up and just maybe half an hour a day unzip it and talk for a while, then zip it up again. We'd probably do a lot better in life. And James is saying here, uh, well, if I can't get you to do that, the least I can get you to do is listen very carefully, swift to hear, slow to speak, in other words, very slow to respond. Don't go jumping in and launching off. Slow to speak and slow to wrath. Why slow to wrath? He goes on and he tells us, because the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. You'll never feel like you're doing well in the Lord if you do your nana. That's the Kevin Quirk Amplified Version. You will never feel like you're doing well. You never feel like it's a good thing. There's no way that getting angry serves your walk in the Lord. Uh, wherefore, lay apart uh, all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. Uh, James says here, look, lay apart means to get rid of, you know, a bin it. Get rid of all uh, filthiness. You know, our old life may have been full of filthiness, you know, drinking, drugs and immorality and so on and so on. He says, lay apart all filthiness. Just just get rid of that out of your life. Don't go there anymore. He says, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Now, that's an expression you're not going to hear very often around the dinner table. But what it means is, naughtiness, not in the sense of kind of, um, you know, you naughty little boy, it means naughty in the sense of bad behaviour in the Lord, as adults. Bad adult behaviour, he says. And bad adult behaviour, he says, is superfluous to your work in the Lord. It, it isn't good for you. It does you no good. Bin it. There's, a, there's just stuff here he's recommending you bin. All right? And receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your souls. He says, I want you to be focusing on what God's word says and to be absorbing that because that's actually able to save your soul. That's actually able to make you a better person. It's actually able to give you a wholesome, good life. He says, go for that instead of the other. Uh, receive with meekness. Uh, the idea, of course, is that if you're not meek, you won't receive it. If, you, if you're full of your own ideas and your own opinions, well, you might only last spirit-filled for three weeks. That might be the end of it because no one can tell you anything. Receive with meekness the engrafted word. The engrafted means uh, the implanted word. It's actually by God's Holy Spirit. He's actually embedded it in your mind somehow. I don't know how that works, but he has done that. And as you hear the word of God, stuff will leap out at you and you think, that makes sense, that makes sense, that makes sense, that's wonderful. Praise the Lord, I get that. And uh, you will be able to enjoy it and do it. But, in verse 22, be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. In other words, he says, don't just listen to it, you've got to actually put it into effect. You've got to start it in your life. It'll be baby steps sometimes. You get filled with the Holy Spirit on a Sunday. Maybe you go home Monday and you, you pray for five minutes and then you do your nana for five minutes. It'll be baby steps. Forward two steps, back one step. That's quite normal. I think um, our sister mentioned earlier on, her father got filled with the Spirit, went, by the sounds of it, got filled with the Spirit, went home, opened the fridge, pulled out a beer <laughs> and thought, I'll show them that it's not working that well. Um, fair enough. I mean, that, that can happen. But 
two steps forward, one step back. It's like a baby. You don't expect, expect to see a baby come out of hospital and uh, start asking you questions about the meaning of life. You know, or details of mathematics or physics. You know, you don't get this little kind of little, little, uh, you know, uh, five day old baby come out of hospital and start saying, uh, Dad, I've got a few questions about, uh, that'll freak you out. You know, baby's a baby. A toddler's a toddler. I think the Lord gave us such slow developing children so we get the message that Christians develop slowly. But they've got to keep heading in the right direction. Nothing more sad in life to see someone with a, a disease where at ten years of age they look no bigger than a three-year-old. They've never grown. And it's tragic. He goes on and he says in verse 22, But be ye doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving your own selves. For if any man be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man beholding his natural face in a glass or in a mirror. For he beholds himself and goes his way and straight away forgets what manner of man he was. He says, he says, look, the, the ultimate illustration for this is if someone looks in a mirror and they turn around and say, oh, what colour are my eyes again? <laughs> Have I still got a moustache? <laughs> you know, you've forgotten what's in the mirror. And he says, well, this is now your new mirror in the Lord. We need to look in here and remember what we are and uh, let the Lord change us accordingly. Uh, perhaps another verse or two. Yes, okay. Um, look, Hebrews is a pretty powerful one too. Go back to Hebrews 12. I had some other things I was going to say, but uh, time will elude me. Hebrews chapter 12. Hebrews chapter 12 and um, uh, verse 5. Uh, you have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. Now, uh, Paul is quoting an Old Testament uh, uh, a proverb here, and the proverb is, My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint or become weary uh, when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges. We get filled with the Holy Spirit, we've got all sorts of rough edges on us, haven't we? We get filled with the Holy Spirit, we come out of the baptism tank there and we go to the change room or something or other and there's all sorts of things hanging off us. Our thinking is still old, our behaviour may still be old, our, our uh, friends and associates may not be the best ones we need to have and so on and so on. There's a whole bunch of stuff and the Lord has to knock off the rough edges and he does so by teaching us. He says the Spirit will teach you all things and he explains here that as we uh, grow in the Lord, if we're not actually picking up the point we end up in a pickle. That's what he's saying. He's saying the Lord will actually send a, a drama in your life which will leave you in a pickle so that you'll recognise I'm not doing it God's way. I've decided to do it my way instead of God's way. And he's saying here, now the first thing is you must not despise the chasing of the Lord. If you get your back up and say, well that's it, I've had enough of that, I'm not going to do that anymore and so on and so on and so on. Well that's despising the chasing of God. Uh, and if you do that, you won't get much further. It's like a, any child of course. You know, if a child turned around after you gave him a bit of a whack on the backside and said, I'll do that again and I'm taking you to court. You know, you get a big shock, wouldn't you? Some little five-year-old telling you they're going to take you to court. You know, but, but, but no child does that. You just give them another whack. That's obvious, surely. Get it out of them. And of course, the Lord's the same with us. You don't turn around to God and say, I'm not happy with this. You need to change your approach, Lord. 
really? Despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. Now this is because, as I say, we're still sometimes surrounded by some of our old habits and our old ideas and our old behaviour and so on. And uh, the illustration we're talking about tonight is sin. And uh, the Lord does that. It's like so many things in life. Elsewhere the Bible talks about how every man shall receive for that which is done, whether good or bad. It says, as you sow, so should you reap. And in life we know that's true. If we, if we, uh, if we study hard at, you know, at, at, at high school, we get a pass and we get into university. Uh, but if we don't, if we neglect that, well, we don't pass our high school. If we, uh, uh, if we follow the road rules, nobody ever pulls us up. People just wave to us. We're lovely people. But if you decide to go 20 k's above the speed limit, don't be surprised if you get a ticket. And all of a sudden you've got to pay like, it's like hundreds of bucks now. Who knows what it is if you do 20 over the limit. <laughs> I know what it is if you do 8 over the limit. It's 100 bucks. I couldn't believe it when Leslie got the ticket. <laughs> no, not true. I'm just joking. But it is true. What you sow is what you reap. You know, uh, around us in society, things are designed to actually keep us in line and to knock off the rough edges, to help us comply, to work in and so on. It's the same with God. You know, all of a sudden, you know, the wheels fall off at work or dramas in our, our relationship or problems with the kids that are of a particular nature and so on. Maybe headaches with the neighbour next door. Things that you hadn't expected that just don't seem quite, where did that come from? That's what out of left field. And the Lord's saying here, uh, I will give you a clip behind the ear if you don't get rid of that. That's exactly what he's saying. Verse 6, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. Um, God disciplines us to, to bring us into line, to bring us into his will, to bring us onto the path. He wants us to be shining examples. He wants each and every one of us to be miniature Jesus Christs walking around on the planet. That's what he wants. Uh, he goes on in verse 7, If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chastens not? Um, and he's describing this relationship between parent and child and the way in which a parent, you know, where disciplines their child and so forth. No child is ever, well, I shouldn't say no child is beaten to death. That's, that's probably not true nowadays. But, but, you know, most normal parents don't beat their children to death. They simply, they're trying to get a result. You're never going to uh, overdo it with your children. That's quite clear and quite obvious. Uh, but the Lord says here, I've got to do stuff sometimes to clip, give you a clip behind the ear to bring you into line. That's how it works. Uh, we go on down a little further in verse, uh, uh, look for time, verse 9. Furthermore, we've had fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Uh, shall we not much rather be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? He says here, you know, our natural fathers and mothers, they gave us a clip behind the ears and when we got old enough to realise they did a really good job, we, we, we love them for it, don't we? All the people say. <laughs> we do. Of course we do. You know, imagine if you had a parent that just neglected you your whole life, ran away, left you on your own. It would be a dreadful experience, wouldn't it? Uh, for they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now there's a difference between righteousness and holiness. Righteousness is a gift from God that's inside you. It's the one where it says on your scorecard in heaven, this Christian is now perfect forever. All the people said. That's righteousness. 
He made him to be sin for us and you know sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. But now he's talking about holiness. Holiness holiness is a reference to how we live. It's our life down here on earth. And God is giving us a clip behind the ears sometimes to bring us into line. Now, no chastening for the present seems to be joyous but grievous. Who likes getting a whack on the backside? Nobody does. It's a pain in the backside. Nevertheless, afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to them which are exercised thereby. He says, nonetheless, after we've gone through the process, we feel good again. We feel happy again. We feel at peace again. We feel confident again. And he says, as you go through that process, that's what you feel afterwards. Uh, to those who are exercised thereby. The word exercise, I love it. It's the Greek word gymno, or like, like gymnastics. In other words, it's you're trained by. This is the process by which God trains you. Wherefore, verse 12, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. So, everyone lift up their hands which are hanging down and your feeble knees. I'm supposed to walk around like that? Not at all. What he's saying, of course, it's a metaphor. You know, we'd say in modern day English, you know, oh, why the, the long face? Your face is no longer than it was yesterday. But in ancient Greek times, the metaphor was, oh, your hands are hanging down and your knees are all, you know, weak and sloppy. In other words, you sort of say like, a, you know, you've got the cares of the world on your shoulders sort of thing. And he says, don't be like that. Lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way. But let it rather be healed. In other words, make sure we're on the right track. Follow peace with all men. Uh, Part of this process, he says, is to achieve the fact that we're at peace with all men. Our job is to be at peace with uh, uh, our friends and our enemies. Be at peace with all men. It says, as far as life within you, be at peace with all men. He says, uh, be at peace with all men in verse, uh, follow peace with all men, verse 14, and holiness, this aspect of allowing the Lord to knock off the rough edges in your life. Maybe for you it was swearing, maybe it was drinking, maybe it was drug taking, maybe it was you know doing other bad or silly, foolish stuff. He says, chop it out. Lay off all superfluity of naughtiness. Oh my goodness. Lay it aside. Sorry about that. Um, he goes on. I'm just about finished here, by the way. Uh, verse 13. Make straight paths for your feet, lest that which is lame be turned out of the way, but let it rather be healed. Follow peace with all men and holiness without which no man shall see the Lord. God expects us to be changing as time goes by, becoming more like Jesus Christ. It's not your righteousness. Your righteousness is on the inside. It's secure. It's our life and our lifestyle. He goes on in verse uh, uh, verse, uh, verse 15. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you and thereby many be defiled. He says this is another great danger. He says that you that you might end up becoming bitter about something. You might become so irritated with something that it's just it's just grabbed your heart and your soul and you just can't stand that person anymore. And he says you must never be bitter. You know the Bible talks about forgiving. It says if you forgive you'll be forgiven but if you hold a grudge you won't be forgiven. He goes on and says in verse 16, lest there be any fornicator or profane person or worldly person like Esau, who for one morsel of meat sold his birthright. He says, for goodness sake, don't go back to old immorality and bad behaviour and so forth. He says, remember Esau? Esau sold out his birthright for a bowl of stew. And uh, Paul the Apostle is saying, 
Don't you realise that's what it's like sometimes? People sell out everlasting life for a cigarette or a joint or perhaps for some other foolish uh, behaviour. And he says, don't do that, don't go there. Uh, he says uh, in verse 17, For you know how that afterwards, when he would have inherited it, the blessing, he was rejected. He found no place of repentance, though he sought it carefully with tears. For you are not come unto the, the mount that might, might not be touched, uh, that might be touched and that uh, burned it with fire, uh, nor unto blackness and darkness and tempest uh, and so on, but you'll come unto the New Jerusalem and so on. Chapter 10, back one page. Just one little verse here, just to kind of explain something. Sometimes people say, well, what's the point of no return? The point of no return is when you don't come to church. That's the point of no return. That's when all of a sudden your, 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 your lifestyle, your behaviour, whatever, uh, has overwhelmed your spiritual determination. In chapter 10 here, we read down in verse, and while you're enduring chastening, God deals with you as with sons. If you're coping and getting through and persevering and, and uh, you know, chipping away at the things that you know that God is trying to change in you, then you're the son of God. But in Hebrews chapter 10, Paul makes it very clear, verse 23, Let us hold fast the profession of our faith without wavering, for he is faithful to promise, and let us consider one another to provoke unto love and to good works, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. He says, as you see the day approaching, if you can see little things happening that seem to click into place, little bricks in the wall that seem to indicate that you're not far from the Lord returning, then the way to approach it is to be at church more, not less, not forsaking the assembling of yourselves together. Verse 26, For if we sin willfully, after we receive the knowledge of the truth, there remains no more sacrifice for sins but a certain fearful looking for of judgment and fiery indignation which should devour the adversaries. He that despised Moses' law died without mercy under two or three witnesses. Of how much sore a punishment suppose ye shall he be thought worthy who has trodden underfoot the Son of God and has counted the blood of the covenant wherewith he was sanctified an unholy thing and has done despite or insulted the Spirit of grace. In other words, Paul explains here that to, to not be going to church means you are denying God, you're kicking sand in the Lord's face, I hope you know what you're doing, you're insulting the Holy Spirit which has saved you, you're insulting the Son of God who gave his life for you and you're insulting God who wants to rescue you. He says, that would be so dumb, surely. Uh, and you, all that you have will be a certain fearful looking for of judgment and firing indignation. If we abandon God, if we, if we no longer want to be chastised by God anymore, and we say, I'll oh, blow it, I'm going back to the world where it doesn't matter out there. No one's on my case out there, just live like everybody else. Well, you can do that, it's a free country. But what the Bible teaches us here is for the, every day for the rest of your life, you're going to wake up and the very first thing you'll have every morning is, the Lord might be coming back today, and all that I've got in front of me is meeting the Lord and fiery indignation. And all the people said, it's the truth. And the Bible's teaching us here, so you don't go back to the world. You just keep persevering in the Lord. You are saved. You are here. Therefore you are saved. That's his little message here. Over the page. Just to finish up on final verse. Uh, final verse over in... Uh, uh, trying to keep it quick, very short. Verse 34, if you had compassion of the, uh, me and my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, 
knowing in yourselves that you have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. When Paul writes to the Hebrews here, probably the ones back in Jerusalem, he says, he says, I want to remind you, you, you stuck by me when I got put in prison. He said, I'm grateful for that. And uh, you were known as the guys who stuck by Paul, the crazy guy in prison. He said, and you eventually, he says, you suffered the spoiling of your goods and you took it joyfully. Uh, that doesn't actually come out quite so clearly in our version, but most modern translations say something like this. Uh, and then, when everything you owned was taken from you, when everything you own was taken from you, you rejoiced anyway. A, a, a very calamitous situation for the Christians, no doubt, in Jerusalem. Verse 35. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which has great recompense of reward. If you have need of patience, that after you've done the will of God, you might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come, will come, and will not tarry. And all the people said... 